earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. We're up to Session 11 in our series. Oh, that verse means that. And we've been devoting considerable time to scrutinizing some well-known Bible passages, thinking they mean one thing when we first read them, yet we're discovering that in their context, they actually reveal something quite different. If you've missed any sessions or want to catch up, just go to faithtalk1360.com and search for local program podcasts. Friends, the Apostle Peter, in his first letter, stirred up his audience by reminding them of truths they already knew. So I don't feel bad repeating something I've been saying throughout this series. The Bible has a story to tell us, doesn't it? In fact, it's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But sadly, oftentimes we preachers, teachers, and pastors, as well as Christians in general, tend to make, even force, or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. And whether we do this knowingly or unknowingly, I'll still say, shame on us. Well, in today's session 11, which I'm calling, So What Were We Thinking? We'll unpack Proverbs 23, 7. And I'm sure you've either said this yourself or you've heard others use this text to make a point. For as he, or a man, thinketh in his heart, so is he, as the King James reads. Now, friends, if we're going to make an honest attempt to uncover the meaning behind a text or passage of Scripture, we must be aware of some fundamental keys to helping us accomplish this. You probably haven't noticed it, but throughout this series, I've been employing a study method that includes three key categories or stages— observation, interpretation, and application. In that order... We can't cheat and play leapfrog over observation and interpretation, jumping ahead to application, and first figuring out what it means to me. Friends, I am of the conviction that the lion's share of time in investigating should be in the first stage, the observation stage. When I've taught this in my disciple-making communities, I paint the picture of a manned spacecraft taking off at Cape Canaveral. Perhaps you've seen this or watched it in movies. You know, the huge room full of computers and people with their eyes trained at their screens. A room full of scientists, mathematicians, and strategists, all bent on making sure their calculations are correct. After all, this spacecraft is headed to the moon. Now, friends, just think, if their calculations are off by one degree on Earth, what do you think will happen to the craft's trajectory to the moon? Maybe it'll be off by 10 degrees, maybe 50. Maybe our manned spacecraft will end up at Mars or Jupiter. One slight calculation error on Earth is magnified many times regarding the final outcome. 
Well, friends, so it is with Bible study. If our calculations, so to speak, are off by 10% in the observation step, then they'll be off by 30% in the interpretation step. And finally, they could be off by 50% or more in the application step. In fact, we could be off so much that the application we make could end up being the exact opposite of what the text actually teaches. On top of that, it won't affect just us, but anyone we're teaching or advising. Do we really want to risk that, friends? Do we really want to risk that we might be teaching falsehood and not even know it? Well, the observation stage generally includes three activities. First, determining the correct text or translation. Second, consulting and comparing several reputable translations. And third, considering the context, which in the end becomes the ultimate mediator. We discussed this aspect in depth in part nine. So first up is determining the correct text or translation. Now, it's important for us as English readers that in some editions of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, there's a footnote at Proverbs 23, 7 that says, meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. In English, the Revised Standard Version has a footnote that reads, Hebrew Obscure. Now, don't panic, friends. Don't be wondering if this means our Bibles aren't accurate. They are. Occasionally, with ancient languages, words or phrases crop up that are hard to translate. So, translators make a valiant effort to decipher these words or phrases and offer their best insights. And be assured, friends, no variant readings contradict any long-standing doctrines or teachings. In fact, in the 1999 Jewish Publication Society's edition of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the preface says in part, Amazingly, manuscript differences are truly minor. More than 99.9% of the time, the Masoretic Bible's witness, and that's a reference to the Masoretic text amassed between 6th and 10th century BC. So, the Masoretic Bible's witness gives identical accounts. Rarely does the variation impact the meaning of a given verse. But at times, we must exercise care in deciding if one verse or one sentence will be our poster child verse to defend a pet doctrine we hold. And it grieves me, friends, to have to tell you that this is precisely what is done with Proverbs 23.7, particularly using pet translations that say, For as he thinks within his heart, so is he, or as he thinks within himself, so is he. Well, for fun, let's dip our toes a bit into the wonderful world of Bible translations. And it's fine that we each have our favorites, but let's remember the first goal of the observation stage is to determine the most accurate text or translation. So, let's begin with the 1917 Jewish Publication Society's edition of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, which says for verse 7, As one that has reckoned with it himself, so is he. And just an FYI, the Hebrew word reckon includes the meanings to calculate or estimate. It may also hold the meaning to act as a gatekeeper or doorkeeper. From its Aramaic roots, it may include assigning or estimating a value to, and from an Arabic derivative, it may include the idea of a market price. 
Figuratively or metaphorically, our English word think has a richer background to it, so we must honor both the linguistic and cultural backdrop if we're going to get to the bottom of what this verse actually means or is intending to teach us. Perhaps this is why the 1999 JPS translation suggests the rendition, He is like one keeping accounts. Well, let's continue combing through some other reputable English translations, shall we? Interestingly enough, the English RSV translation is similar to the Hebrew, saying, He is like one who is inwardly reckoning. God's Word to the Nations translation, known as the GWT, says, For as he calculates the cost to himself, this is what he does. In a similar vein, the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, says, For it's like someone calculating inwardly. The 1965 and the 2015 versions of the Amplified Bible differ slightly. The 1965 version says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. As one who reckons, he says to you. Whereas the 2015 version says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he in behavior, one who manipulates. Hmm. Personally, friends, the 2015 version of the Amplified Bible hints at the underlying motive of the host, which we'll uncover and expand upon when we get to the third activity, context. Next up, let's include in our arsenal of translations the Septuagint, also known as the LXX, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible by Hebrew scholars some 200 years before Jesus was born. And friends, an interesting little known fact is that when the apostles and writers quote the Old Testament in their New Testament books, they more often than not quote the Septuagint, the Greek translation. So it's apropos to give it a look. For verses 7 and 8, it reads, So he eats and drinks as if anyone should swallow a hair, and do not bring him into yourself, nor eat the morsel with him. He will vomit it up and spoil your fair or kind words. Now, an alternate understanding here is that the guest himself will vomit up the food and not the host. We'll see shortly which rendering is more likely when we unravel the context. But let me say at this juncture, friends, that our preconceived notion of this verse and our poor understanding and transmission of its message is slowly breaking down and crumbling, isn't it? So, so far we've examined a handful or so of translations, and already the biblical idea of think is being renovated. Shame on us, friends, for making this text teach what it never intended to teach. Already the observation stage is bearing fruit, isn't it? And we're not done yet. Well, let's finish up our survey of respected English translations. The New American Standard, the NAS, says, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. And the NAS has a marginal note at verse 7 that says, literally reckons in his soul. And remember, we unpacked reckon earlier, its range of meaning and understanding. The New Revised Standard Version, verse 7 and 8 says, For like a hare in the throat, so are they. Eat and drink, they say to you, but they don't mean it. You will vomit up the little you have eaten, and you'll waste your pleasant words. And by the way, there's a bottom of the page note in the NRSV for the first part of verse 7 that says, Meaning of Hebrew uncertain. The New International Version says, For he is the kind of man who is always thinking about the cost. 
and the NIV adds a footnote that has a few other options, for as he thinks within himself, so he is, and or for as he puts on a feast, so he is. Perhaps a balanced treatment is found in the expanded Bible, whose base translation is the New Century Version, a dynamic translation. The expanded Bible provides two literal options. Selfish people are always worrying about how much the food costs, or, more literally, they calculate in their minds, or they are like a hare in the throat. This hare in the throat idea, which we already saw in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, also crops up in the Revised English Bible, which reads, For they will stick in your throat like a hare. Well, friends, I think it's time we read the immediate context of 23.7, which is chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. Now that we're a little more armed and dangerous and have a better feel for the verse under scrutiny. So I'll read from the current Hebrew text for verses 1 through 8. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider well who or what is before you. Let me stop here. We'll define who the you is shortly when we get to context. And the Hebrew for who can also be translated what. Perhaps the author was intentionally ambiguous because both actually fit the context. The text continues, thrust a knife into your gullet. Wow, that's really crude, isn't it? Most English translations have put a knife to your throat. But this Hebrew translation has thrust a knife in your gullet if you have a large appetite. Other English translations say if you are given to gluttony or if you are a man given to appetite or if you are a big eater. The text continues, do not crave for his dainties for they are counterfeit food. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Other English translations say that food is deceptive or he might be trying to trick you. The Amplified adds, this food is offered with questionable motives. So the text continues with verses 4 and 5, which almost seem out of place and break up the space between verses 3 and 7, which continue on about dining with a ruler. Verses 4 and 5 say, do not toil to gain wealth. Have the sense to desist. You see it? Then it's gone. It grows wings and flies away like an eagle, heavenward. But I believe there's a thematic tie-in, which we'll get to shortly. For now, let's continue with the dining theme, as verses 6 and 8 say, Do not eat of a stingy man's food. Do not crave for his dainties. He is like one keeping accounts. Eat and drink, he says to you, but he does not really mean it. In other English translations, this phrase is worded, but his heart is not with you. And the Amplified adds, it, his heart, is begrudging the cost. The NIV says, do not eat the food of a begrudging host. Do not crave his delicacies. The CSB says, don't eat a stingy person's bread and don't desire his choice food. Then the CSB has a footnote that says the literal wording is, don't eat bread of an evil eye. The New King James says, don't eat the bread of a miser. The 1965 Amplified Bible adds, eat not the bread of him who has a hard, grudging, and envious eye, neither desire his dainty foods. Well, friends, we've come to the third and final activity of the observation stage, reading and considering the context. And we have two primary contexts here. The first we already read, verses 1 through 8, 
The second, the broader context, is Proverbs 22, 17 through 21, which sets the stage for the 30 sayings of the wise, and of which Proverbs 23, 7, the verse we're scrutinizing, is part of saying 9. In this larger context, Proverbs 22, 17 through 21, actually gives us a broader purpose for these 30 sayings by repeating the so that phrase found in verses 19a and 21b. In between are the phrases, teaching you to be, which virtually functions just like the so that phrases. So we can deduce that these 30 sayings have a common root purpose. First, so that you trust may be in the Lord. Second, so that, in other words, teaching you to be honest and speak the truth. And third, so that you bring back truthful reports to those you serve. Friends, when we read saying number 9, chapter 23, 6-8, which encompasses verse 7, we're challenged to notice an underlying attitude or feeling beneath the surface of the conversation. And it is precisely this underlying attitude or feeling that is being challenged based on the three common root purposes of all the sayings, as outlined in Proverbs twenty-two seventeen through 21 Perhaps God's word to the nation's translation, the GWT, might shed some additional light when we read verses 6, 7, and 8 together for the gist. Do not eat the food of one who is stingy, and do not crave his delicacies. As he calculates the cost to himself, this is what he does. He tells you, eat and drink, but he doesn't really mean it. You will vomit the little bit you have eaten and spoil your pleasant conversation. Now, friends, before we leave the third activity of observation, consulting the textual context, let's draw some obvious conclusions about the subject at hand. Chapter 23, verse 1 clearly sets the stage, doesn't it? When you sit down to dine with a ruler. So the subject at hand is being invited to dine with someone who's higher social station than you are. A ruler, as the text says. This context of a meal is reinforced over and over with phrases like, Do not crave his delicacies, for they are counterfeit food. Or, that food is deceptive, verse 3. Then we have verse 6, do not eat of a stingy man's food. Verse 7, he says to you, eat and drink. Verse 8, you will throw up or vomit what little you've eaten. Now, if we look back to the last few verses of chapter 22, we discover that it concludes with suggesting just who will gain entrance into the presence of a king. So, it would be logical and proper to assume that chapter 23 begins with addressing the you, when you sit down to dine with a ruler, to refer to men who are aspiring to or who are in training to become courtiers in the royal court. And this is where the cultural context helps us. History teaches us that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, young men were groomed to learn proper manners at state dinners and formal occasions. So the verse on putting a knife to your throat means not overindulging yourself on the delicacies of a high official who may be whining and dining you to manipulate you to do his bidding. 
Additionally, a guest at such an affair must be careful to not make an unfavorable impression with rude behavior and in the process play into the ruler's plan to manipulate him. Being a glutton with a high official's rich fare could easily be nauseating and make one ill. Hence the possibility of vomiting. <laughs> we learn from Egyptian documents that young men who work hard and become skilled, as Proverbs 22.29 implies, could land a job in the royal court. It was incumbent upon these trainees to learn proper conduct when at a ruler's table, particularly controlling their appetite. These writings in the ancient Near East demonstrate that formal dinners headed by superior officials had a role in professional life. Additionally, high officials or rulers intentionally showed favor among their underlings by giving them different sized portions of food. We see this in Genesis 43:34, when Joseph showed his favor to Benjamin by giving him a larger portion of food when his brothers were there. Our Proverbs text also brings out the idea of hypocritical hospitality on the part of the host, who appears generous on the outside, but resents having to shell out for all the food, so is calculating or estimating in his mind the value of what this spread is costing him. In Proverbs 23, 6, where it says, Do not eat of a stingy man's food or eat the food of a begrudging host, the Hebrew term used here describes someone who is duplicitous and only interested in their own wealth. So, friends, this is where we get the bridge to build verses 4 and 5, verses that at first seemed out of place, but really not. Verse 4 says, Do not toil to gain wealth. Have the sense to desist, because wealth is fleeting. Jesus did not oppose owning money. He only opposed money owning us, which speaks to motive. Also, this proverb is not in opposition to 1 Timothy 6, which says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Well, friends, by now you're probably wondering, what in the world could this proverb be saying to us in the 21st century? What application can we make? And that would be a great question. We've already hinted at one of the valuable truths in this proverb, that is universal truth, applicable to all times and in all places. But let me warn you, because it's an uncomfortable subject, hypocrisy. Ouch! This proverb screams out to instruct us not to be duplicitous. This is just a big fancy word that is sometimes replaced these days by the word disingenuous, but it carries with it the meanings of being underhanded, two-faced, self-serving, and double-dealing. Duplicitous also refers to a person who intentionally misleads, and especially by saying different things to different people or acting different ways at different times. Ooh. But you might say, come on, Pastor Tom, we in the body of Christ are not like that. Well, I'll reply, oh, really? Well, friends, underlying this brief proverbial saying in Proverbs 23, 6 through 8 is both outward and inward truth. We are being admonished to not only think truthfully on the inside, but act truthfully on the outside. When these two are not consistent, you know what happens. You know the word.
hypocrisy, thinking one way yet behaving another. So is this proverb relevant? It sure is, friends. Well, friends, I think a fitting conclusion that's right in line with Proverbs 23, 1 through 8, is Psalm 15, which says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of today's program, which will close with an email where you may write me. One listener wrote in about part nine in this series, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, and toiling in the Lord. No joyride indeed. However, when we toil in the Lord, as you so aptly put it, the rewards, though not immediate, are permanent and forever. I'll try to remember that next time I'm discouraged, and hopefully the ride will be a little easier to deal with. Blessings and thanks. Thank you for those words. And friends, the podcasts are at faithtalk1360.com under local program podcasts. And remember, a word from the word is a listener-supported program. So please consider financially helping to keep this program on the air with your kind support during these financially challenging times. Email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. 